You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. As every poli-sci student knows from their Plato to NATO class, NATO is A, the most successful alliance of its kind in history, and B, that it was founded in 1949. As you can imagine, intelligence is incredibly important to the whole endeavour. To find out more about NATO and intelligence, I sat down with David Cutler. Now, David's had all manner of interesting jobs at the NSC, ODNI, DIA and the Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. At the moment, though, his job involves coordinating with the Secretary General, 30 states and 75 intelligence agencies. Talk about herding cats. With Russian forces building up on the Ukrainian border, the timing of this episode could not be more germane. Along the way, we discuss what it's like to be the leader of intelligence and security across a 30-nation alliance, how intelligence comes together at NATO, some of the challenges facing the alliance, including Russia and cyber, and life in Brussels and David's journey from a 17-year-old Long Island boy to NATO. I know that you, I know that you live in Brussels, David, but I know that you're not there for the strong beer uh, or the muscles <laughs> um, as your main, as your main reason for being there. Tell us a little bit more about what it is you do, and a little bit more about NATO and intelligence. Sure, um, intelligence is critical to the alliance. It's really important to alliance decision making. It's important to the alliance to understand what's happening in all the regions of concern and all the key issues. And it's really important because the alliance makes decisions, uh, we say, at 30. And there are 30 members of NATO right now, and they have to achieve consensus. 
And so intelligence is a key component of that decision-making process as they assess the environment and the situation. As the Assistant Secretary General, I'm the first American in this post. Um, and as we're likely to discuss, the post itself is fairly new. This is only the fifth year uh, that this post has been within the NATO structure. As that Assistant Secretary General, I'm the strategic leader for intelligence and security across the alliance. I'm the principal advisor to the Secretary General and the Chairman of the Military Committee on those issues. I also represent the nation's intelligence and security services in the NATO headquarters environment. So in that capacity, I'm their advocate, I'm their proponent, um, I'm an advisor uh, on their behalf within the NATO uh, leadership structure. I also have a lot of responsibility to manage the Joint Intelligence and Security Division. So a fairly large um, division within NATO that consists of permanent staff and also uh, many men and women from the intelligence services themselves uh, that serve there. I lead their efforts, I care for their people, and help them protect them, the facility, and, and all of that information. And I have responsibilities to set priorities um, for the alliance for, for intelligence and also to define an intelligence and security vision and then develop and execute a strategy. I think in simple terms, I really have four key tasks. Um, the first is to provide that good security. We have to have adequate protection for NATO people, information, and facilities. Because if you don't have good security, you don't have trust. If we don't have trust, we're not going to be able to engage in the discussions we need to engage in. We're not going to have the right information and so on. The second task is to be sure that, that they all have the same intelligence-driven facts at 30, at the same time, drawing on the best that all of the nations can provide uh, to NATO, synthesized uh, within my division, and in some cases by the, by the nations themselves. And that draws from both military and civilian intelligence and security services in that business. The third key task is to raise that level of knowledge consistently and persistently over time. So if they say we need to know more about China, as they have in recent years, you have to make sure that they all have the same common baseline that's relevant to their tasks and their decisions at hand. And then we have to fill that in and really make sure that that's enriched. And finally is to lead the NATO intelligence and security enterprise now and out into that future. When we say the enterprise, what we mean is uh, my, my division in the headquarters environment um, shape or the military component um, that's in Mons in, in Belgium, and then also Allied Command Transformation that's based here in the U.S. Uh, in Norfolk. So I'd just say, uh, to close out my answer to your question, I think people should remember that there are 30 member states uh, in NATO. I think most people will know that if they've looked at NATO. But I bet you what they don't know is that there are more than 75 intelligence and security services within those 30 nations in the alliance. So we've got not just an incredibly strong, in fact, arguably the strongest military alliance in world history, uh, but also one that brings a lot of intelligence diversity and capability to the tasks at hand. NATO has nothing that the nations choose not to provide. So it's critically important that the nations have that trust and participate in this framework. And I think the last thing you should know about my job is that the Secretary General is my boss, but imagine him in this context to put it in a different frame as that he is the CEO of a large international conglomerate that engages in multiple um, business lines. And I am the CEO of the business line for intelligence and security. The nation's intelligence services, in effect, are my corporate board. So they provide that governance and the oversight for all the work that I do. Okay. I think that one's a good, <laughs> it's a good trivia question. 75 intelligence agencies in NATO. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think like for some of our listeners, you know, they, you know, this post has been there for five years and some of them will be, oh, 
I remember in political science from Plato to NATO, uh, NATO was founded in 1949. Uh, what, what took it so long uh, to set up a role like yours for intelligence when, as you so articulately said, it's so central to NATO's enterprise during the Cold War? When are the Soviet armoured divisions going to pour through the field of gap? When are the intercontinental b- ballistic missiles going to start coming for Washington, D.C.? Um, it helps us understand that time lag um, in terms of your role. Sure. So, as you said, 1949, the alliance is formed. Uh, the Washington Treaty is signed here in Washington, D.C., and the alliance comes into being. At that time, the Deputy Secretary General was tasked with leading the intelligence effort. Now, as you'd imagine, the Deputy Secretary General's got a lot on his or her plate. Um, so they did attach a lot of importance to it because the DSG it was tasked with running it. Um, but you can imagine that he or she, very busy, uh, they have lots of roles, not just in the headquarters environment, really on behalf of the alliance as a whole. And what happened over time was that there was a recognition that as a result, uh, the intelligence and security efforts lacked comprehensive focus and a lot of oversight. There was duplication in efforts and duplication in tasking, duplication in resources required in a nation's contributions. And I say duplication, really, the civil-military divide. So the military committee had its own intelligence support organizations. The North Atlantic Council is the civilian body that provides the political guidance and direction on behalf of the nations, had their own intelligence uh, components. And so the challenge then became you could have and did have differences of view the military committee is supposed to provide military advice to the North Atlantic Council. So if they receive a different intelligence picture than the North Atlantic Council does directly, that needs to be reconciled and difficult for the DSG to handle. So a conversation really began in 2010 at the Lisbon Summit about the need for this to be resolved. And it took six years, so the time to get to the 2016 Warsaw Summit to really have resolution. And during the Warsaw Leader Summit, the leaders decided to create my post so to create an assistant secretary general for intelligence and security, to create my division, the Joint Intelligence and Security Division, and then also to create this concept of that NATO intelligence enterprise I mentioned to you uh, in my previous answer. So I ask you to just keep in mind that it's, it's Joint Intelligence and Security, as in the title. It's also Joint Military and Civilian. We draw from military and civilian intelligence. And I wouldn't say regardless of the source, because the source does matter based on the topic at hand. You know, if you have more of a political question, it's probably uh, more appropriate for civilian service. If you have a military question, it's probably more appropriate for a military intelligence service. But we do look across the board, and my division provides that uh, consolidated support to both the North Atlantic Council and the military committee. Sue Gordon was the PDDNI when I worked in the DNI, and uh, I learned a lot from Sue. And I've, I've echoed and adapted her language about what that means then in practice. So my job to help synchronize that effort is first to bring the best of intelligence to bear at or before the moment of decision. Um, it doesn't matter which nation, doesn't matter which service, doesn't matter whether it's military or civilian. We just have to the best intelligence that the 30 nations can provide so that the best decisions can be made. The second task then is to ensure that, that everyone has the right authorities, permissions, and resources necessary to be successful. Do they have all the tools? Can they actually do the job? Then to create the space for the team to do what it does best. They're all professionals. They know what they're doing. This is really some of the best people drawn from those 75-plus intelligence services from those 30 nations, dealing with a lot of really, really good information uh, for them to inform the alliance's decision makers. And then the final thing is we have to protect it all. 
So security, security, security in everything that we do. And that leads on to one of my next questions was, how does all of this like come together for you on a on a daily basis? Are you constantly on the phone to the Secretary General or the Supreme uh, Commander for Allied Forces Europe or to the American President or the British Prime Minister or all of the above? Like, Help us understand how you make sense of that, all of those moving parts, because there's quite a lot that you're dealing with, 75 intelligence agencies, 30 nations, one headquarters, the biggest military alliance in history. There's, there's kind of a lot going on there, right? So my role mostly plays out in headquarters. And I say mostly because there's also a lot of travel. I mean, like this trip back to Washington in this capacity, I'm not really back in Washington as an American. I'm back in Washington as a senior NATO official to talk in Washington to the nation's intelligence and security services, but also to State Department, to the Pentagon, to the White House, Congress, about how it's going. Uh, what's it like? What does it mean to have an American in this role? What's the value in that? Um, given the significant investment that the U.S. makes in allied intelligence, is that worthwhile? Uh, where is it working and not working? You know, what else should be done and that sort of thing? I like to get in early, as I did here. So I typically will arrive um, not U.S. early, but pretty early in the morning. So 7 in the morning, I'm usually at my desk. I catch up on developments from overnight. I'm looking at our own sources. I'm looking at open sources. And I'm getting ready to start the day. Um, we have a number of meetings with the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General and, the, again, the CMC or the Chair of the Military Committee during the course of the week um, where I'm giving an intelligence update. We're publishing intelligence products over the course of the week that go out to all 30 of those delegations. Um, current intelligence for situational awareness and also longer-term intelligence to address their more strategic needs. My key partner on the military side at SHAPE is the J-2. So the J-2 performs a very similar role to what I perform uh, for Allied Command headquarters in Mons. And a large part of my job then, um, the NAC might convene two or three times a week um, so to hear, have a political discussion, have a political debate. My deputy for intelligence briefs the military committee every morning uh, in their senior uh, synchronization meetings. And I might brief the military committee every other week, every third week, usually en route to a meeting of the North Atlantic Council. So the same topic. So let's say they're going to discuss Russia. I'll brief the military committee uh, first, maybe with a little bit more military-oriented detail, and then I'll give a more politically oriented briefing uh, to the diplomats in the North Atlantic Council later in that same week. So it's all part of making sure that the military committee has the right intelligence picture to give military advice to the NAC. I also do a lot of informal work. So I am communicating with the heads of those intelligence and security services as frequently as I can in writing, in email, uh, send them informal notes. Many of them have representatives that work in the headquarters environment that I'll see on a regular basis in formal committee meetings or in informal meetings. And then I will travel as well. So in recent weeks, I've been to Riga in Latvia. I've been to Athens in Greece. I'm now here. I'll go in at least what I can remember in the remainder of the year. I'll go to Slovenia, Montenegro. I'll go to North Macedonia. I'll likely go to Italy. I'll go to, I'll go to the U.K., and these are important visits for me to hear from them about what their priorities are, uh, where their initiatives are taking them, and for me to give them feedback, how their people are doing and how their contributions are being uh, put to good use as well. Just briefly, can we just zoom out to 30,000 feet? Um, 
One of the things I love about our podcast is that it ranges from the person on the desk working the issue through to the average person on the street that really loves a good spy story. So just briefly, so we're not leaving anyone behind, just break it down for us. So intelligence, NATO, NATO's headquartered in, you know, we don't need to say what NATO is, but just give us an understanding of how you, uh, your role and in, in, in the people that you are responsible for are situated in relation to the bigger picture of NATO, just for the kind of Cliff Notes version. Yeah, so NATO headquarters is in Brussels, Belgium, and there are thousands of people that work for the alliance in that headquarters environment. So this is really the hub of NATO. There are um, two military commands that are based in Mons, Belgium, and in Norfolk, Virginia. So we have ACO, Allied Command Operations, and that's uh, SACUR, the Strategic Allied Commander of Europe, um, is is the leader of ACO. And then we have SACT, uh, Strategic Allied Command Transformation. So that's really about helping the alliance think and shape itself for the future, especially on the military side, based here in the United States. The nations will have permanent representation, uh, is the technical term for that, in the headquarters environment. So each of them will have an ambassador. They'll have a deputy ambassador, and they'll have a military representative so they can participate in both the North Atlantic Council and in the military committee. Many of them will have large support staffs then uh, for that role, you know, depending on their level and the chosen level of investment. And the reason why it's permanent representation is because the, the North Atlantic Council is always in session. So they're like a congressional permanent committee. So they can convene at, at any time to take up issues of, of importance to the alliance. That was a great crystallization of it. Thank you. Um, and help us understand what, what are some of the most significant events that have taken place since your role? Um, I mean, I can think of a number of significant ones, but I would prefer it if you chose a few. Yeah, so this was a, um, this is a really interesting question. Because I also thought about uh, if I were not a professional in this business, what would I think you know, about the, <laughs> about the experience? And I tell you, it's been a strange time because I arrived in this role in November of 2019, and I officially took the post up in December of 2019. So uh, I had the opportunity to come over first uh, as a U.S. person, so think like on vacation in between my American job and my NATO job beginning to get settled in and move and uh, get up to speed with my wife in Brussels, but also to attend some committee meetings before I started the job. And that was helpful to me to meet some people and really understand how this, how this place works uh, because committee structure has a formality, and it's got a set of rituals to it that, frankly, is unlike anything else. Because I just say, keep in mind that you're in a room that's largely silent because there's simultaneous translation into a few languages. Everyone has an earpiece in. You're only speaking when you, quote, have the floor, when you press the button for the microphone, when you're called on. So you're listening to the entire committee meeting through an earpiece. So it's incredibly quiet in this. It's a completely different cultural experience. Uh, than, a, I would say, a normal meeting here. Uh, so I started work on the first Monday in December 2019, and that evening I left uh, on a plane for the London leaders' meeting. Uh, so I think it was like the summit uh, for NATO on my, my very first day. The second day I was at Buckingham Palace and met the Queen. <laughs> wow. And so it was awesome. And saw so all these heads of state. Now, as promised, every month would be like that, and it has not been. Uh, no, you know. So it's just a little bit disappointing. <laughs> Uh, but some key events, um, COVID-19 has been a big thing. It's really affected a lot of 
of the job. Uh, and not just because we were stressed to think about different ways to work um, in that environment where we'd be very careful to try to control the spread, you know, the virus and keep people safe. We also a critical mission, um, especially in my, in my areas. So really important that we try to find a way to work through that. It also impacted a lot of travel. And intelligence and security are really people-driven businesses. Um, you have to have a really good personal relationship. People have to know you. Uh, so you can have that trust. You can do the sharing. You can call on each other when you're needed. Uh, and it's really helpful, not just to be able to put a face to the voice, but frankly, to have shaken hands and had a meal and sat down and really talked about who we are and, and why we share the same values and what it is we're all committed to. During COVID, uh, we saw a lot of mis- and disinformation campaigns. We saw a lot of cyber. We also saw a lot, saw a lot of allied support for each other and, and the NATO partners as well uh, with vaccine provision, uh, with assistance for logistics, uh, helping with medical supply provision, um, helping, frankly, combat those mis- and disinformation campaigns through an alliance framework, so to give them some strength and some backstopping as well as they chose. In August of 2020, we had the stolen Belarusian election by Lukashenko, and the protests began, so now over a year uh, since that, and a pretty significant event um, in terms of European security. Spring 2021, we had that... Um, that very important to take note of an odd Russian military deployment around Ukraine. We've had the beginning of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in the spring of this year, the Madrid summit uh, for for the NATO in June. We had the uh, Russian exercise Zapod begin, their strategic exercise this year in August. The collapse in Kabul and the evacuation of Kabul in the middle, the 14th and 15th of August. And next year, we'll have the Madrid Summit, a new strategic concept. And by fall, we'll have a new secretary general. And I haven't mentioned things like the Ryanair flight uh, force downing, um, Russian espionage and sabotage in the Czech Republic and in Bulgaria over the course of this year, and, and many other things that we've also had to focus on. So it's been almost two years for me. It'll be two years in November. And it's been quite the experience already in terms of just the pace of real-world events and the limitations that COVID imposed on, uh, on really trying to get started properly from the very beginning. And you're going to be there for another two years, is that correct? Yeah, another two years. So I um, accepted an offer to extend uh, for an optional fourth year. Uh, so I will be in this post until November or early December of 2023. And what are some of the challenges that you see coming in the next couple of years? What are some of the the main things that... A, are either, you know, going to push themselves onto your agenda or B, things that you more want to deal with proactively? So I'd give a few things. I think strategically and then within our business. Um, strategically, we have, a, we have a summit coming, you know, as I said, next year in Madrid and the selection of a new secretary general. And the Madrid summit is very important because NATO uh, will agree to jointly a new strategic concept. And these strategic concepts endure for about a 10-year period. And it's a, it's a document that then becomes a touchstone document that the nation's leaders, so the presidents, the prime ministers, will agree to on behalf of their nation. And in doing so, they're saying, this is what NATO stands for. We reaffirm our values. We say that this is what's important to us across this period. These are the, the substantive topics that we'll address. These are the threats we recognize. These are the challenges we see in our environment. This is what we think that um, that landscape will evolve into over this 10 years. And these are our strategic goals. 
So it's quite an important uh, effort. I also say it's a challenge because this, this summit will occur in the June, in the June July summer timeframe. There will be a tremendous amount of work that has to happen, uh, policy, politics, military planning, in order to get to that uh, substantive clarity in the agreement by then. Uh, we also have ongoing threats from Russia. We have terrorism. We have the remainder of the pandemic. NATO's leaders recognize China as a rising power and a systemic challenge to the international rules-based order in the summit communique from Brussels in June of this year. NATO has declared cyber, space, as operational domains that the alliance needs to understand, take advantage of, hybrid warfare, same way. Um, climate change is another factor that we're looking at in security context. So we have all that on the substance. And at the same time for me, again, I'm the second ASG in this role. NATO has only been, as you said in the beginning, in this construct now for five years. And so we need to keep giving it life. We need to make that enterprise real and we need to deliver. So building common purpose and culture, having a shared vision and strategy, building the team, doing, succeeding, celebrating, learning and adjusting through all that, critically important, but really demonstrating the value and the return on investment. I mean, I think we tend to be really hard-nosed in the intelligence business. I don't, I don't think we're transactional. Um, I think we're fair with each other, but we're really clear. It's an important business, and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of trust. We need to make decisions about what we're going to do together and what we're going to share. If I don't see the value, if I don't understand it, it makes, it makes it far more difficult um, in order to get the things from each other that we really need. And so it's critically important, then, uh, that we reach full performance uh, during my mandate. So as I look to this next two years, I've got all these, these practical policy challenges. I've got all these substantive issues that collectively allies have tasked us with really understanding and helping them cope with and build good policies and strategies to deal with and a lot of new areas um, that the Alliance has chosen to tackle. And my organization is still fairly new. And so we have a long legacy, uh, but we do really need to focus on the way in which we work with each other. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I want to come back to Russia um, specifically, but just if you indulge me for a second, it struck me like speaking to you, talking about the nature of this business or talking about the nature of the enterprise and you mentioned relationship building, people and so forth. And it struck me, I'm not trying to butter you up because you're sitting across from me, but besides being articulate and, and knowledgeable, you come across as someone that has a lot of people skills, emotional intelligence. And I think there'll be people out there that are listening that maybe want to work in this space. And and I think that this is something that's often not discussed in the realm of intelligence, um, some of these types of skills. So I wondered if you could just 
go slightly off piece just for a second and tell me about your experience of using those skills, of how important they are, of how important it is or to develop them for people that are listening that might want to have a career in this space? Yeah, I think um, I actually think about that a lot, you know, because this is a this is an interesting challenge in this role. I have authority, but it's tightly circumscribed. I have a job description that has a NATO language, has a mandate with it that gives me certain roles and responsibilities. But I feel like the lessons I learned over the course of my career, and especially my service with the DNI here, the Director of National Intelligence, because depending on how you how you look at my resume, I've worked for the DNI either two or three times uh, in a variety of roles as an analyst and then also as an enterprise manager. And many of the DNIs I worked for would point out that while they have authority, they prefer to use it sparingly. You want to have a team approach and a team spirit. You want to encourage the agencies and the officers within the agencies to work together. So you have to inspire to common action. You have to appeal to reason and to the shared sense of purpose. And the agencies, I mean, especially here in the U.S., but really everywhere in the alliance, at the end of the day, the agencies are going to choose to do the right thing. I'm not the boss of the nation's intelligence services. I'm their representative in the House, yes. But as I said, I'm also accountable to them. So you have to know them. You have to respect them. You have to understand what they can do. You have to be very attentive to their needs. You have to be very careful with their people and their information. It's very respectful of the entire situation. You're not going to direct them to do anything. So you have to build deep and meaningful professional and personal relationships that really matter. And you have to be very mindful that in an intelligence role, we are not political with a capital P, but we are political with a lowercase p. We have to be politically savvy. We have to know what the politicians are saying and what they wish to do. We have to know what they've said are their limits. We have to know, same with military officials, military leaders. This is where they're likely to go. This is where they wish to be. That's how you anticipate where their requirements are. That's how you get ahead. That's how you deliver before the decision comes. It's okay to deliver when the decision needs to be made if that's the best you can do, but it's better to anticipate. It's better to provide the warning. But I'd end my answer to this question and just say again, it's, um, this business is very much a people business. You have to have integrity. You have to have credibility. You have to be direct when it's appropriate to be direct. You have to be diplomatic when it's appropriate to be diplomatic. It takes focused effort to, to be approachable, be engaging, to be solicitous, almost to be an ambassador in that role. To also be able to shift gears to the military side. So I'm, I'm so fortunate that I have a joint military and civilian background myself. I served in the U.S. Navy I, I did not begin my career in intelligence. I transitioned to intelligence uh, in uniform first and then as a civilian. So I can speak military. I understand um, what they're about and what they're motivated by and what they need. I understand that role of intelligence and I also understand the political side. Um, but I think it really starts with you. And I'm very fortunate that over the course of my career, especially when I became a senior officer, I had mentors and bosses. I had good friends and colleagues uh, who shared a view that it was very important that we not just master our business and our craft, but that we also really understand how we need to behave. That we know what are the hallmarks of our craft are 
So again, being apolitical, being impartial, being clear-eyed. Uh, I think we're maligned as being cynics often. I think we're just brutal realists in this business. Uh, but I see that uh, we tend to be genetically predisposed to pessimism, maybe a little bit more than everybody else is. Um, and it's very important for us to understand that that if you're gonna if you're gonna lead through consensus, and if you're gonna build that consensus, that you have to have a different respect dynamic, and you have to you have to really focus on these organizational and personal relationships in order to be successful. The sooner you start, the better, frankly. Because you could build a reputation that gets you off in the, on the wrong foot, that makes it difficult for you to do the business you need to do. Or, frankly, you got a lot of fences to mend. You can go back and really make clear to people that you've learned some things. Um, you know, I've not been perfect in every job I've had, <laughs> certainly. I feel like I've learned a lot. I mean, you grow, you mature. I went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis when I was 17. So I really worked for... Uh, the government, the U.S. government, really now aside from this time at NATO since I was 17 years old. So that's now 33 years um, of this sort of work. Uh, And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you've got to put yourself into it. You need to have that emotional intelligence. You've got to have some passion for it. Uh, If you're going to do it for this amount of time, you better enjoy (laughs) it. Um, And there's lots to enjoy in this business. It, It is a really rewarding field to go into. What's the most enjoyable part for you? Yeah, so I think, um, hey, let me put it too in, in, uh, in personal terms and say that we here, especially in the U.S. system, have so many tremendous opportunities to know things that no one else knows. That's really cool. If you like that, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you like knowing things that most people don't know, if you like solving problems, if you like trying to know what the other person is trying to keep secret from you and coming up with strategies to find that out, if you like solving puzzles and riddles and enigmas, this is a great business for you. And I've had lots of jobs where that's been, um, that's been a key feature of the job. But I also say on a, on a personal level, here especially I feel like sometimes we as professionals in the space lose sight of how special the work really is. I have seen things that the U.S. can do and the allies can do that just makes me so proud of our capabilities, the things that we can accomplish, uh, the technologies we have, the quality of the people, the depth of knowledge. I mean, it is amazing. And we have a great capability. Plenty of other nations have deep capabilities as well uh, in, a, in a broad range of areas. And so that's just been a huge um, personal reward to really get to see. I've seen things and seen sides of this business that, frankly, many people don't get to see. And that's a, that's a great personal and professional reward. I've briefed three presidents. Um, that's a huge thing. I worked at the White House. Uh, I've been in the Oval Office a few times. And I tell you, when I first talked to my family about it, my, my first reaction was sort of, oh, it's no big deal. It was just a task I had. I had to, I had to lead this presentation. And... Um, when I started to talk to family and friends, you realize, well, no, that's actually a very unique experience. Uh, most people are not going to go through their lives and go into the Oval Office at all. And if they're going in the Oval Office, it's not to brief the president on something that the president has either asked for or otherwise needs to be warned of and informed of so that they can get ready to lead the country and defend the country and make good decisions um, as the leader of the United States or as a partner 
um, with any of a range of other nations. And that's a really big deal. I'm still waiting for my invite. Yeah, it's a cool thing. <laughs> but I also say it's only been in recent years that my family has really been able, I think, to, to better understand what I do. Uh, because I think as you get more senior, you, you do have more public-facing roles. So here at NATO, you know, I'm at Brussels with my wife, and I think she now sees, because of the interactions we have uh, with diplomats and with military leaders in the alliance and uh, in some of the capitals, I think she has a better idea of what I do. And uh, when I started work, I was the, the deputy director of intelligence in the joint staff. I was Admiral Rogers' deputy between 2010 and 2012, and you know, went on to be, he went on to be the director of NSA. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant guy uh, and, a, and a great boss to work for. Um, my family had a meeting uh, with the DI director and with the J2 when I took that post up, and they took the time to explain to my kids, uh, who at that time were, this was um, 2010, so my kids were 14 and 10. And it was, uh, it was really important for them to hear from these two senior military people, you know, your father's going to be working really hard and he's not going to be at home as much. And the job has got this and this function in it, but it's really important. And it matters that he's not going to be at home. I know it's a big deal, uh, but this really matters and it's only going to be for a few years. Um, but this has to happen. And um, I tell you, on a personal level, that, that really meant a lot, you know, to have that conveyed because well, I, I don't feel like people really know what we do. And very often our families don't really know what we do either. So to have that, I think, yeah, it's more personal, but I think that that also um, is something I look back on as a really important uh, moment in my career. Mm-hmm. I, I promise we're going to get back to Russia, but I just want to ask one follow-up question with that. Um, it seems to me as well that you're someone that that can come in and understand power structures and stakeholders both people uh, technically underneath you in the hierarchy, people at the same level as you, people above you. And that kind of situational awareness is also something that's not discussed a lot or I don't hear it discussed as much as I would like to hear it. But that's that's really important, isn't it? Being able to come into an organisation to get a feel for it, not to be obtuse towards the various stakeholders and the history and the processes and the culture, but you seem, to me, we've only met for an hour or so, but you seem quite an astute judge of that type of situation. Can you can you enlighten us a little bit more? And is there, Are those chops that you were born with or did you develop them? Or, yeah, tell us how you got there. I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I started as an analyst, which I think is the best way to start, frankly. Uh, biased, because I was an analyst. But I think um, from there, the career path I chose was really more about the provision of intelligence and the advice that intelligence provides. So that strategic synthesis from us to very senior policymakers and military officials to say, these are the most important things for you to know. These are the questions that you ask. These are the questions you should have asked. This is where we think things will go. This is where we think things will be. And to really hear from them, um, and frankly, sometimes in some very open ways, about these are, these are my concerns. This is what I need. These are the things I need to be able to make a good decision. This is what I'm thinking about doing. And to be able to answer, you know, again, on behalf of the, the whole community, right, to be able to provide this service, um, what might happen if, 
So I have options. If I take that option, what do you think the consequences of that will be from a threat perspective? What opportunities do you think that creates? What risk does that entail? And that is a craft within our, within our business. I think people that have been the president's briefer have the skill. People that have been the DNI and the PDDNI, I mean, I'm not saying I have the skill at that level, but that's a, that's a key set of skills for them to have as senior intelligence and security advisors, as senior officials in these roles. If you, if you think about it in terms of the private sector, I've done a lot of intelligence marketing and sales, right? To be able to go to these customers and say, we can answer that question or we cannot answer that question. You want it in two weeks, I think it's going to take three. You have five questions, I feel like we can answer four. The fifth I might be able to answer, but it's going to take this much more to be able to get it done in terms of time or resource commitment, or I'd have to find this out and then this out and then this out in order to get there. And being able to explain not just the power of intelligence to them, but the fact that intelligence does have limitations is also really very important. My master's degree is in policy management, so think like a... um, like a master of public administration, essentially. So the, the civil sector version of the, of the MBA. And I've served in a lot of bureaucracies. And usually uh, my focus is then on figuring out the culture, the history, the psychology of that bureaucracy and the way business is done. Because you have to move in that. You have to work in that system in order to get things done. I'd say that it's really good experience for NATO because uh, it's a multinational environment. It's in a foreign country, and there are 30 nations in those 75 intelligence services. And so the challenge really is you have to understand not just the NATO bureaucracy, the permanent staff that the alliance pays for to to administer its functions, but you also really have to understand the 30 nations and what they want and why they want that. Shared values, uh, their policy and military priorities, um, the threats that they perceive to themselves, the value that they seek to draw from the alliance and the contributions that they wish to make. And so it is really important that you understand that whole, uh, that whole environment and, the, and the, if you want to call it a bureaucracy, the, the way the bureaucracy comes together. Mm-hmm. And let's get back to uh, great power competition. <laughs> uh, let's change tack. Um, so I think it was Lord Ismay back in the day, he said the goal of NATO was to keep the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. Um, I don't want to touch the first two parts, but yeah, <laughs> can we you. touch on <laughs> can we touch on the last one? Um, Russia, obviously, for most of NATO's history, Russia was you know a major focus. Uh, to say it was a major focus would be an understatement. So help us understand Russia now through through the lens of your position. So we have um, again we have we have thirty members. Many of them are on the eastern flank, so actually share a border uh, with Russia. And they, as you'd imagine, the closer you are to Russia, the greater the concern you have about the potential risk. It's not to say the others don't have many of the same views, but I think it's fair to say that, that especially the nations that are, are either former Soviet republics that are in the alliance as members, um, or the nations even that were in the Warsaw Pact have a much different appreciation of that history so some details on Russia. Um, look, I think it's fair to say that relations between the NATO member states, the NATO as an alliance and Russia, is at the lowest point since the Cold War. In no small part because of Moscow's aggressive actions that threaten security in the Euro-Atlantic area. Um, 
We've seen violent oppression of political dissent in Russia. They undermine and destabilize their neighbors. I mean, you can look at the cases of Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. They're, they continue to conduct a wide-ranging military buildup from the Baltic to the Black Sea, across the Mideast to North Africa, and from the Mediterranean to the Arctic. Allies have called out Russia for disinformation and for propaganda efforts to influence elections, cyber operations that have been conducted against allies and against our partners, chemical weapons use against political opponents, not just at home, but also in NATO member states, on our own territory. But nonetheless, NATO has maintained a dual-track approach. So on the one hand, we have deterrence and defense as one of our core approaches, and on the other, we have dialogue. NATO is, notwithstanding all that, still open to dialogue with Russia to try to avoid conflict, try to minimize misunderstandings, reduce the chance of a miscalculation, and that sort of thing. So we will keep defenses strong. Uh, we will be ready to talk, and, and we make our positions clear, and we will avoid misunderstanding, and, and we will try to prevent escalation. So you can't work in NATO and not have great focus on Russia and really understand that we will engage Russia and there may be opportunities for things that perhaps we can do together, but there's also a lot of risk. Uh, and there are a lot of threats that Russia poses to stability and security in Europe and even here to the United States. I guess I would be interested as someone that spent, you know, decades in this business and, and given your role now and uh, the centrality of Russia, What's your analysis of Russian intelligence at the moment? Do you have any sympathy with this idea that Russia is a, a waning power and these are demonstrations of a system that's getting progressively weaker? I, I guess the question is, help us understand your, your analysis of the, the trajectory of Russia's intelligence services since the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Well, the Russian services have remained some of the most capable in the world, and they've got a very diverse toolkit of things that they can do. Um, and they do a wide range of intelligence and security service operations as well that range not just from intelligence collection, but as we've seen, uh, again, in these poisonings, these attempted assassinations and sabotage operations, also significantly lethal action in these places uh, against these the Russian-designated targets. Uh, they've got tremendous cyber capability in addition to that intelligence collection, intelligence operations, and lethal operations capacity. And so they, they should not be discounted. I hear the same thing, and there's a plenty of analysis about Russia's a waning power. And I think certainly it's fair to say that, that Russia today is not, as, is not as strong and as powerful as, let's say, the Soviet Union was, you know, at its peak. But Russia still has strategic capabilities, still have nuclear weapons, they can still conduct, short of employment of nuclear weapons, a great range of, of strategically destabilizing activities. The Russian leadership has a view that they should have, if not the nations that used to be part of the Soviet empire, brought back into uh, Russia itself. They certainly have a view that they should have dominance within what they define as their sphere of influence. Uh, they usually hear you know, refer to the term as the near abroad. Well, that conflicts with the sovereignty and the national will and the independence of many of their neighbors. So you look at um, the illegal annexation, right, which is a fancy political way of saying the theft and occupation of, of your neighboring country when they took Crimea. Um, interference in, in Ukraine's east. They've done the same in Georgia. They've done the same uh, in Moldova and so on. And so 
um, that that presents a great number of challenges and instability. And it's just a gross disrespect for the sovereignty of those nations and the freedom of those people that live in those nations as well. Mm-hmm. I want to shift tack now to look at hybrid war. Can you just tell us how NATO is adapting towards that? Because there's been lots of strategic change, right? Because it used to be how many you know, armored divisions do you have? How many aircraft carriers and so forth, tactical fighter wings? Um, now hybrid war is something different. We could tie that into it being the weapons of the week, but let's let's just uh, stick on this idea of hybrid war. How does the political military alliance that is NATO adapt or how is it adapting towards hybrid war uh, specifically with reference to intelligence? So I should put a plug in from the NATO website at www.nato.int and say that uh, my colleagues in public diplomacy have got a great um, body of information available. It's publicly accessible about the alliance and its history and its values and also about issues like hybrid warfare and about cyber, why NATO is focused on them, what NATO cares about, what NATO means. And I actually did an expert's briefing on hybrid warfare uh, that was posted earlier this year. So this is, okay. this is an issue uh, that I really focus on. So first, I think it's important to make sure that people understand what we mean when we say hybrid warfare. And it's really a term of art that refers to things that are short of outright conflict that can achieve some of the same political ends uh, that war might, that are designed to be uh, concealed, confusing, difficult to understand, difficult to attribute. So you don't necessarily, very difficult to prove, well, who did that? What does that mean? So you could think cyber in that, election interference, disinformation. Uh, But you can also think things like political assassinations and um, coup attempts, and you could think uh, internal, fomenting internal unrest and all of those things in this space. It's a space in which um, sometimes intelligence and security services work uh, and do their business. And so we really need to understand this. I think it also challenges things like common, situation, common situational awareness, consensus, because you have to orient yourselves to the situation and you have to share an appreciation of what's happening so that you can reach a political agreement that I'm gonna, I can call it what it is. I know who it is. I know what it is. Now I can have a debate about how I best want to address it. So it's really insidious. Um, and a point I made, uh, again, in that, in that other briefing, is that it can also be deadly. You know, if, if you create um, uncertainty about the COVID-19 vaccine and people refuse to take it and they die as a result of COVID, you've meaningfully contributed to that death. If you conduct a hostile cyber attack and you cut the power off in a target nation's capital, You've also turned power off in hospitals. Well, what if your what if your loved one is on a respirator in that hospital when that when that uh, hostile cyber attack conducted as a hybrid warfare operation um, turns the power off? How do you feel about it then? Uh, Lithuania, right now, you're seeing hybrid attack conducted on them with forced migration on the part of Belarus across their border and also into Latvia and into Poland. These are, these are really huge things that happen in this hybrid space. And uh, we do have a lot of focus on understanding it. The Alliance has a, a counter-hybrid support team construct 
that we've used. In fact, um, recently announced in, in Lithuania's case, and we've used it one other time in the past to provide that um, the assistance, intelligence assistance, military assistance, political assistance, et cetera, to really understand what the nature of the threats are and help those governments um, make themselves more resilient and respond to the threats at hand. So uh, we do put a lot of effort in on that. And you can imagine from what I'm saying that the intelligence challenges then are really large because you have a lot more ambiguity. So you have different questions that you have to ask and answer. Those answers are often more sensitive uh, than they might otherwise be given who might actually be involved and what tools they might be using to accomplish those objectives. It makes it difficult to share, let's say difficult to work with each other in this space. And it can be very politically sensitive. I mean, take election interference as an example. Those are sovereign issues. That's a, a sovereign nation that's being interfered with on one of their most fundamental rights for their people. And it's not something, frankly, that, that most nations are going to want to come to the international community for assistance in. And yet increasingly, they almost must, given the nature of these challenges. Uh, so hybrid is a, is a huge thing for us to understand. Cyber, um, we are retooling for cyber, actually. Um, cyber intelligence and cybersecurity have been longstanding high priorities for the alliance. And leaders, as I said, um, did designate cyber as a domain for NATO focus and operations in recent years. So that drives military adaptation. That drives policy work. It also drives, for me then, uh, intelligence and security work and for those allied services in that way. We've had a comprehensive cyber adaptation underway that's been led by the Deputy Secretary General. So again, to give you a, a really good idea of how important it is for the alliance, and that's done in full concert by, by and with the nations and their support. We've changed governance. We've added resources. Uh, we just hired a new, a first um, chief information officer for the alliance. We'll have cybersecurity as one of his key tasks and really making that enterprise work to be well protected. Increased intelligence, increased security, and we'll strengthen teamwork then across the board, not just in, in the enterprises that I work in, um, but also in many others in order to, to best protect NATO cyber. Just briefly, I just wanted to get to help our listeners understand a little bit more about your background. Uh, obviously, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but if you just give us like an idea about uh, some of the things that you've done in the past, so maybe we could start off with, what, what role did you hold immediately previous to going over to Brussels? Yeah, so immediately prior to this role, I was an assistant director of national intelligence, and I was the chairman of the National Intelligence Management Council within the ODNI, within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And I, be, I took on that role as the chair of that council because immediately prior, I had been the National Intelligence Manager for the Near East uh, for a few years. The NIM Council, the National Intelligence Management Council, is made up of 17 National Intelligence Managers that are the DNI's enterprise leaders to help him or now her best understand what the intelligence community can do and what it needs in terms of authorities, permissions, and resources, where it must go to help the DNI use that coordinating authority uh, in order to get the agencies to work in concert with each other. And then also, just as when I worked for the chairman, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we'd say the purpose of the Joint Staff is to harness the power of the chairman on behalf of the combatant commands. Uh, what I would say here is it was to harness the power of the DNI on behalf of the intelligence agencies within our intelligence community. And then finally, to help uh, the DNI be the principal intelligence advisor to the president. And so uh, 
an important role, um, but also <laughs> a really exciting one and a really good job. And as I said earlier, even in this discussion, I think really helped me best prepare uh, for this role. I did not start my career in intelligence. Uh, when, I, when I was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Navy, I actually served as a naval surface warfare officer. And I served in cruisers, uh, two on the West Coast. So I did a, um, a deployment. This will really date me for Operation Southern Watch uh, in the Persian Gulf. So we did uh, no-fly enforcement uh, over Iraq. And then I did a counter-narcotics deployment. And on my second cruiser, I was selected for the foreign area officer subspecialty when the Navy brought it back in 1995. And in that, I had the option to take a range of shore duty assignments that included assignments in intelligence. And that's where I chose to go. So I actually began my intelligence career as a Navy lieutenant at the Office of Naval Intelligence. And I worked in an office that's fairly unique uh, called SPEAR. And SPEAR was created to bring naval aviators and one token surface warfare officer at the time, which was me, into the organization to translate highly sensitive, highly compartmented intelligence information and intelligence assessments into things that Navy and Marine Corps fleet operators, pilots, air crews, surface ship crews that were air defenders, uh, like the ships I served in, could understand and use, usually at lower classification levels. And I loved it. And so I, I got um, the opportunity to go to what then was a joint military intelligence college at night. It's now the National Intelligence University, uh, run by the DNI now, used to be run by DIA, um, my home agency now in the U.S., and I, I picked up all the Navy subspecialties for intelligence, op intel, strategic intel, technical intel, uh, and really got into it. I joined uh, the Naval Intelligence Reserves when I left active duty, served briefly in the private sector. And after 9-11, uh, I, like many other people, returned to public service and then became a civilian working for Naval Intelligence again, but as a full-time professional civil servant working as an intelligence officer. And I've had the opportunity to work um, at the Pentagon for the Navy, at the Pentagon for the Joint Staff, at the Defense Intelligence Agency as its CT chief, within the DNI as the National Intelligence Manager for the Near East, also as the Principal Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Military Issues. It's a little out of order. <laughs> uh, I worked briefly at the White House in the previous administration as Deputy Assistant of the President for Regional Affairs in the National Security Council, back to the ODNI and now to NATO to be the Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security. Wow, it's been quite the journey from uh, a 17-year-old boy coming south from uh, from Suffolk County, yeah. New York to Annapolis. It's been quite the journey, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's been huge. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, uh, I graduated uh, in uh, May 26th of 1993 from Annapolis, and I was married June 6th of, 1990, of 1993. And um, my wife and I have been together. We've known each other for a really long time, even before that. And our children are now uh, in their 20s. And uh, so this has been, uh, it's been quite the adventure together over that time. And just briefly, uh, if I remember correctly, in the TV series Turn about the Culper spy ring, uh, Pat Chogg has mentioned, did you grow up uh, with the legend of Nathan Hale and Culper and, uh, you know, Benjamin Talmadge and stuff? Was that part of your childhood lore? You know, it's where I'm from, uh, but I wish I'd known that then. I didn't know that until I saw the series too. Okay. <laughs> and it's really too bad because there is a lot of intelligence history uh, uh -huh 
on Long Island also that's really worth better understanding in the whole New York area, especially. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Long Island has a rich history uh, yeah. and intelligence history as well. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank I'm you. happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. Now.